From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, I really feel like there should be like a big Ben Bong after that. Like it really feels like it should be a moment. But anyway, okay, so Square to buy Australia's afterpay in $29 billion deal. That's huge. CMA mandate sweeping in a big win for the UK open banking. And both Rapid and CUDA boast huge funding rounds to boost their expansion plans. All this and much, much, much more on today's show. Uh, Before we start, we want to tell you a little bit about something we've been cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors too. Blockchain Insider, our podcast dedicated to all things crypto, is back by popular demand. Join me, Simon Taylor, alongside Visa's head of crypto, Kai Sheffield, as we're joined every other week by special guests to discuss their take on the hottest crypto news. We'll also be diving into DeFi, stablecoins, NFTs, and a whole lot more. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest-performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. All right, folks, welcome to episode 552 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Greer, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Guerra Kawani. How are you doing? Hi, doing okay. Uh, feeling like uh, daring you to bleach your beard blonde, David. I mean, you know I'd be up for that type of challenge, if I'm honest with you. I think it would I be... It it'd be it, it would be good fun. I just I don't think I'd be as quite as cool as you doing it though, if I'm honest with you. But um, but I'm up for it. Like uh, I did think about that to scare my children at, at, uh, at Christmas to do it like Santa Gray, you know, and like like just see what happens. But I'll be honest, I reckon natural uh, natural graying is going to do that over time anyway for me, sadly. But uh, well, you're uh, you're out. Uh, well, you're definitely not in London at the moment. Where are you? Where? Tell everybody where you're at. I'm currently in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, suffering a Kenyan winter. Uh, so don't laugh but it's like down to like 17 degrees celsius it is cold yeah i mean that's like our summer so like I, i'm not uh i'm not sort of crying too much for you on that one but uh but it must be an interesting shock to the system nevertheless anyway but uh um as always guerra we're joined by some super duper awesome guests uh, making their welcome return we have mike kelly ceo and founder of curl stateless group and formerly product leader for vpr at open banking gonna be super timely talking to you mike but uh, always great to have you on how are you doing yeah, I'm doing well. Slightly triggered by the acronym being wrong there. It's technically, well, it's not technically, it is VRP. So VPR, uh, VRP, it's fine, don't worry. Acronyms aren't really that important. Everybody seems um, to think they're important, but they're not. I mean, there's it, no, nothing like when you invite somebody on and get their title wrong. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean at least I get your title wrong. Usually I get people's names wrong, I'll be honest with you. So, uh, but uh, apologies, yeah. I will correct I'm, I'm really good, though, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very good. Um, and, well, we'll get into one of the reasons why I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm fairly satisfied at the moment, so um, job well done, but we can talk about that a bit later on. Very good. Uh, and equally uh, welcome return to the show, uh, Mr. Snark himself. Uh, we have Ron Shevlin, Director of Research at Calderstone Advisors. How's it going, Ron? I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks a lot for uh, having me and great to be back on the show. It's great to have you on. I'm a, I'm a big 
fan of all things that you write if i'm honest here ron and we'll we'll come and i know i've sort of said this to you in uh in person uh when i mean we just touched on it before we started recording it was literally a thousand years ago when we met in new york but uh but the just the you and uh, i say this to chris all the time consistently just exceptional writing that you do so if you uh if you haven't heard of uh ron uh go find him on the internet he's a great person to follow all right we better get on with the show because there's l- roughly like a billion stories to kind of get through and a lot of interesting things to do. And I know we'll dig into them in, in a crazy detail. So first up, there was a, a story that was over on CNBC and a, pretty much a thousand other places uh, as well. This is really the the big story of the week. Square to buy Australia's afterpay in $29 billion deal. So Jack Dorsey's payment company announced $29 billion all stock deal to buy Afterpay as it looks to expand further into the booming installment loan market. Uh, Square points to consumers issuing traditional credit, especially younger people, uh, for installments. Managed not to use millennial in that. That was good. Uh, Payment players and fintechs from PayPal and American Express have been rushing to launch their own version of buy now, pay later products. Uh, And the price tag roughly uh, marks a 30% premium to Afterpay's last closing price. I mean, this um, this is a super big story, really. And actually, for many different reasons. But Ron, if we, we come to you first, uh, speaking of things that I read of yours, uh, your Forbes column on this one, I thought was exceptional. So let, lead us out on this. What do you think? So obviously, buy now, pay later, or BNPL is in the news practically every day and, and super hot. Um, what's People should note that there's definitely geographic differences in, in this. Uh, you know, uh, Australia, it's been super hot. I really couldn't talk to Europe as much. You guys probably know better than I would how hot it is in in, uh, in um in Europe and in England in particular. But you know, interestingly, in the U.S., for all the hype around buy now, pay later, uh, it's not that huge. Uh, last year, about twenty four billion dollars in buy now, pay later purchases were made. That's my estimate from surveys I've done, and actually is kind of in line with estimates that came out from Oliver Wyman as well. So I feel pretty confident about that. And with about $5 trillion in retail sales, uh, $24 billion is kind of a drop in the bucket. However, a couple of things. Uh, based on some research I've just completed, and I don't even think I've published anything off of it yet, a uh, new estimate is that for this year, that number is going to practically quadruple to about $100 billion. And more importantly, uh, last year, it was very much concentrated among millennials. About one out of five millennials in the U.S. had uh, done some sort of BNPL purchase. Uh, and that's now expanding into both Gen Xers, you know, the older generation, as, as well as the uh, the Gen Zers, the, the younger generation. So it certainly um, is getting a lot more, more press and attention as a payment mechanism. But uh, David, as you might have seen what I read, uh, what I wrote rather, um, my take on this deal is that it actually has little to do with buy now, pay later. It has a lot more to do with uh, Square looking to expand both its uh, seller and, uh, and cash app ecosystems. Um, uh, you know, uh, Afterpay brings a, uh, I, I forget the exact number. I have it in the article of, of the number of merchants that they work with. Uh, and of course, they've got a lot of customers, not just in, in UK and Australia, but in the US as well. In fact, although their penetration is relatively low in the US, I feel, still think they're bringing somewhere around 6 million customers to the table. Uh, and that's important to, to Square because, look, it's a platform. It needs to build as many... Uh, merchant and customer relationships as possible. 
And if this were strictly about buy now, pay later, I think they could have developed it for a little bit less than $29 billion. I could be wrong about that because I hear that uh, programmer and developer costs these days are pretty expensive, but I'm still betting they could have done it for less than $29 billion. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? And and actually, I mean, when you look at that against, you know, something like, uh, you know, Visa's attempted acquisition of Plaid, uh, you know, you could say a similar thing, I guess, couldn't you, in terms of, you know, maybe Visa could, but almost, you sort of feel like with Square, they've got the the engineering chops to do things properly, haven't they? So this is, as you say, Ron, a, a kind of almost an accelerant, really. I mean, something that I, I found interesting in, on this one as well is like, uh, we start to see sort of fintech eating itself a little bit in terms of, you know, fintechs are getting big enough now to start acquiring other big fintechs. And and almost, you know, uh, the whole, I mean, I think it was, um, was it four, you know, three or four years ago, feels such a long time, pre-COVID, you know, the uh, the conference trope was, uh, you know, unbundling and rebundling. And actually, now that we've started to see sort of fintech rebundling in amongst itself, not requiring the big organizations to kind of be involved in it, um, it almost feels like the, the sort of power dynamic shifting a little bit. But um, I'll take your point, Ron. I mean, in the UK, Mike, uh, I mean, you know, interest-free and, I mean, DFS have been giving people sofas on interest-free credit for such a long period of time. So, I mean, is this uh, is this the sort of evolution of that? And and actually, what do you think in terms of the context? Do you think this is a, a big step? So I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit, and I'm going to try and find where I think there may be a, not, not, not a problem with it, but just an interesting sort of, uh, I guess, I guess a criticism maybe of of this move, or at least something that that may be a fly in the ointment, and that's that it feels a little bit kind of monolithic and old school. So what I mean by that is Ron made a really great observation about what Square's business is growing into as a platform business, bringing consumers and merchants together. It feels a lot like kind of the direction that Visa took in the very early stages. Um, One of the things about kind of um, Square taking on or bringing on their own form of credit in buy now, pay later, it does feel somewhat monolithic. Someone like Visa wouldn't be offering consumer credit. They would be working with partners to provide an array of providers to consumers who could provide credit. And so Square, in a way, kind of jumping into the game of offering consumer credit seems a little bit like a kind of regressive step into the old world of trying to build these kind of monolithic propositions instead of a more of a platform play where they could integrate with credit providers and bring them into their network and their platform. Mm. Yeah, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, arguably, if you look at the business model of Square and everything that they do now, it's actually like the most revenue-generating parts of what financial services is doing, isn't it? They've almost avoided all of the, you know, they're not going to do a, a loss-making, you know, current account at scale or whatever. They're they're picking off all the pieces that really sort of make make money to a certain degree. But I do take your point, though. It's uh, it's almost a, um, you know, rather than compete or build, they've just gone straight to buy, haven't they? Well, but, I think uh, it's, you have to decide whether or not you're building a consumer payment network and a new payment method, or whether or not you want to be building balance sheets. I think it's hard to be the network and a node on the network at the same time. It's a it's a sort of strange thesis. It it may work. I mean. So a good example of a very kind of monolithic modern tech proposition would be Apple. I mean, Apple are renowned for not playing very well with partners, and they have one of the most successful tech brands in the world. So maybe Square is bringing the, building the kind of Apple equivalent um, in the finance industry. But I think it's, a, it's going to be interesting to see that play out and, and see how that affects Square's ability to be this kind of 
uh, platform and facilitator between uh, consumers and businesses. Mm. Dave, if I can comment on that first. Uh, I think Mike's making a great point, but I do think that we're looking at this too, maybe too narrowly. It's from simply the payment mechanism aspect of it and, the, and, the, or, the, and or the credit aspect of it. Uh, I've said this before. I'm going I'm to stick to my story. I, I think the long-term, long-term trend around BNPL is less about sort of credit and payment as much as it is sales enablement. I, I think that, you know, for these, for your firms, Sezzles, uh, uh, future pay, after pays to really succeed, they have to help merchants sell better. Uh, and funny, you know, if you go back, I guess sixty, it's I guess it's seventy years now to when credit cards came out. What was the big selling point? Was that it was going to enable more sales at higher ticket prices? But now it gets a lot more sophisticated. And so, Mike, I, I think your point about it being monolithic and, and issuing credit is, is spot on. But I don't see this as credit. I see it as sales enablement um, for those people who've you know gone through college and taken marketing 101. I don't know if they still teach it or not, but back in the old days when I went to school, they taught about the four P's of marketing: product, place, price, and promotion. And while many people have tried to propose new fifth P's, I put out there that payments is truly become the fifth P of marketing. Uh, and, and I think the buy now, pay later is a good good aspect to this. So uh, totally with you, Mike, about it being kind of monolithic. I also think of this kind of being sort of they, every network wants to kind of build its own walled garden, Facebook, Apple, and now Square. Uh, so that's not against being the platform. It's about bringing everybody in the platform and then closing everybody else you know, out of it. Um, but uh, I, I do think that this is as much as about sales enablement and helping merchants sell more as it is the actual payment or issuance of credit. I totally yeah. agree with that. I think anything that's going in the direction of providing value add services to merchants and moving away from this kind of transaction fee, um, kind of rent seeking model that traditionally we would associate with payment networks, I think is so on point. And, and from a kind of consumer proposition point of view and a strategic point of view, this acquisition makes total sense. I think buy now, pay later, as a sales, sales enablement for merchants is, is, is totally key. It was, a, it was more a kind of, a kind of a question about the kind of their relationship as a platform with uh, providers in that space of sales enablement. Do they become a platform where there's an app store for merchants to be able to select from an array of providers of sale, sales enablement? Yeah. Or do they monolithically just build kind of the square set of propositions? And I think it's kind of it's maybe a little bit old school, or maybe it's genius Apple esque innovation. Who knows? Well, it's a it's a fine line between sort of monolithic and monopolistic, isn't it? In terms of actually where those things go, which might end up being the title of this podcast, I think potentially. But uh, I mean, Guerra, what do you think on that? Because obviously, exactly like Ron said, you know, the we've had uh, you know people like Klarna on a, a lot on the podcast talking about you know actually it's like basket size, like this actually helps as, as Ron was sort of saying, it helps retailers, you know. There's a lot of talk about friction, but when you don't have to pay for it immediately, that really takes out the friction, doesn't it, on buying shit stuff? Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, you know, Square is kind of owning the checkout, uh, the checkout like in person, but as well as well as like uh, online. Um, so Square started off with the little dongle thing. Um, so everyone knows Square, right? We all we all have used a Square like e-commerce you know platform at some point in our lives, uh, but really just. This acquisition is possibly one of the smartest acquisitions, I think, in recent history. Think about Tidal. They bought Tidal recently. Um, but this acquisition is just kind of 
bringing, digging them a little bit deeper, like going deeper into the checkout experience um, for their merchants. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a win-win for merchants and customers uh, to really just complete the purchase. Mm. No, I agree. It's it's going to be fascinating to see how this acquisition actually plays out as well. Whether you know whether they do retain uh, running independently or whether it is a you know a true merger of of actually what they're looking to achieve. Because I mean, a lot of what you hear about Square and you hear about Afterpay, you know, they've been successful because of the way that they've gone about doing these things in in that sense. But before we um before we move on on from this one, one part of your article, Ron, that I thought was really interesting, and it's something that we we talk to people about. Uh, quite a lot is you you were talking about it being a feature not a product um and we we sort of different cycles of fintech right you sort of see is it a feature is it a product is it really a business and uh, i'd love to kind of get your perspective on that on the show yeah i just go back to my comment before about sales enablement and helping merchants sell that's the product that's the service the buy now pay later piece is is easily replicable that's the that's the commodity part of it it's it's just the feature the product or the service is the ability to help merchants sell better i think that you're going to see a lot of of more narrow specialization among these bnpl providers as maybe a firm you know leverages its relationship with Peloton to figure out how to sell more high-end goods to, to more affluent consumers, Afterpay so figuring out how to push more uh, payment, uh, installment payments on more affordable type products to a different segment. Got to remember too that from, from Square's perspective uh, on the on the consumer side, on the cash app side, which is you know, gone gangbusters and incredibly profitable for them, especially because of the crypto purchases that they enable. But they have a demographic problem. Their their customer base is very heavily skewed towards low to middle income consumers. And, you know, while merchants are never going to be unpolitically correct and say, well, we don't want those consumers, reality is, is they want a consumer base that can afford to buy a lot of stuff. And so, Square has to kind of build that out a little bit more. So they're going to need players like Afterpay who have learned how to help merchants sell more. So Mm. I I stick to my my guns on BNPL being a feature, not a product. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in that context, and I hadn't really thought about it that it, that way before, Ron. I mean, is this a is this an evolution in credit business models? Because essentially, uh, you know, credit cards were uh, essentially penalizing you for wanting it now if you couldn't afford it. But the the cost goes to you as a consumer, whereas buy now pay later essentially is paid for by the merchants, as you say, in terms of that. So is this is this kind of an evolutionary step in financial services business models that actually the consumer is not taking the the brunt of the uh, the fees, but they're being actually passed on through the the merchants? Well, let's go. Let's look at history again. When credit cards came out, you didn't hear merchants complaining about interchange fees and rates and all that kind of stuff because it it did help them sell more. Uh, Given the the slower evolution of everything up until recently, it took a while until they kind of realized, you know, the the impact of that had kind of worn off and now interchange fees became, you know, the big bugaboo. Uh, And so we're just going to see the evolution of buy now, pay later is the same thing. The, The benefits will wear off over a couple of years. And then the fees that 
the the merchants are paying not on a you know to, on a on the sale itself not a necessarily as bad as interchange but the the benefit's going to wear off to some extent and so we'll just see that yes it is absolutely an evolution it's just the next step but I think we'll see the the rise and fall of buy now pay later business model which once again means well you you've got to have the sales enablement capability and attribution to prove it. Uh, that's where credit cards, uh, you know, suffer these days. You can't prove that the credit card enabled the sale or enabled a higher ticket item. It's going to fall on the buy now, pay later providers to have the attribution uh, and prove that they're they're really adding to the merchant's bottom line. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we could probably do a whole show on that and in, in itself, and uh, but we probably better move on because there's a lot of other stuff that happened this week. So uh, we're going to move on, but super, super interesting. I think the uh, as this deal plays out and as uh, we really sort of see where the lines are sort of drawn on this one, we'll definitely be coming back to it. So uh, next story that we had was over on Finextra. It was CMA mandate sweeping in big win for UK open banking. So uh, the CMA, uh, that's the Competition and Markets Authority, has ruled in favour of the open banking implementation entity recommendation to validate variable reoccurring payments, as Mike said, VRPs, my bad, uh, and the mechanism for implementing sweeping uh, in the nation. So sweeping refers to the automatic transfer of money between a customer's own account and has been long encouraged across open banking landscape. Um, I mean, Mike, this is this is almost, again, uh, we know we talk about the industry growing up. I mean, this is open banking going to a uh, another level, isn't it, in terms of actually being able to do something about it? I know we, me and you shared a bunch of DMs about this and we were both getting very excited, but uh, tell, tell us what this means and why it's significant. Yeah, so I think one of the um, sort of risks with this is that it can seem a little bit dry and technical and that it's not really a big deal. So it's lots of sort of acronyms and weird terminology and stuff, and it sounds a bit abstract. But really what this is actually about is it's about empowering customers to be able to connect third-party services that can help them improve their financial well-being, not by just giving them reports. So previously, open banking was really all about data. That was really what open banking afforded you as a third party and as a customer to be able to kind of share your bank account, share the data in your bank account. And that's okay because there's a certain cohort of users that will read a report and then they'll take action based on the feedback that's in that report. But the moving of funds between their accounts was always a a piece of action that the customer had to take themselves. And that's quite a big friction point for a lot of consumers. A lot of consumers expect these days to have a very kind of automated, seamless experience. And what sweeping is really about is empowering customers to be able to connect those third-party apps to be able to move their funds around automatically on their behalf. And all of a sudden, these types of kind of uh, what are referred to as sweeping propositions, which are essentially really, if you boil them down, financial health propositions, they can help you, you know, uh, avoid unnecessary fees and charges. They can help you earn more from your savings. Those are really the two key areas. These types of propositions can can start to appeal to a much broader audience. And I think open banking really starts to kind of, it's going to start to really um, move the needle for a lot of consumers in a way where previously uh, it didn't because the user experience wasn't completed. Yeah, I mean, it, it get back to what we were touching on a little bit on the last story, right? You know, uh, punitive business models, right? Uh, you, we know you're going to go overdraft. We'll send you a text message about you going overdrawn, but we won't do anything about it, even though we know you've got some savings money here. I mean, this now, to your point, uh, you know, is is this just completely removing a whole uh, uh, business model of overdrafts and 
you know, the, all these different things that sort of sit within it? Because that, I mean, I guess guess that's where the pushback potentially will have been. Yeah. So, so the pushback was really in in kind of two key areas. So the first was this kind of area of the prudential risk associated with putting kind of economic pressure on retail banks in the UK. The argument goes something along the lines of if we put if we create significantly increased amounts of pressure on the you know, balance sheets of major retail banks that could create systemic financial pressure. I think the reality is that these types of propositions are going to gradually grow in the minds of consumers. It's not going to get turned on immediately. And I think the idea that this would represent a really significant uh, systemic risk is, is frankly a little bit fabricated. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a reasonable point to make, I guess, theoretically speaking. Um, where, where we really had the biggest challenge, and when I say we, I think that it's it, the industry as a whole in making the case to the Competition and Markets Authority that mandating VRP for sweeping was something that was proportionate, which is something that the CMA really concerns itself with when it's deciding whether or not it should be mandating something on the banks. It has to make the case that something is, is proportionate, both in terms of its, um, its, its sort of cost to the banks, but also its risks associated um, with the broader market. The, one of the key areas was consumer protections. Um, and that was the thing that I spent... 12 months working inside of open banking as the VRP lead on. So I was helping do a piece of analysis essentially for the regulator that helped them understand what the potential customer detriments were and what the potential kind of mitigation mechanisms that were available to these um, new payment actors would be uh, and why that would lead to uh, um, a kind of um, sufficiently safe um, environment for these new propositions to come to market. So I did a, a whole bunch of kind of analysis with with colleagues in open banking. We wrote two consultation papers. Uh, and then what happened last week was that the CMA gave their final verdict on that. Unfortunately, it came out in favor of um, mandating the nine biggest banks in the UK to provide open access for third party providers in the UK to be able to move money around automatically on behalf of consumers. And, and that's, I mean, that's no... Uh, small feet. Do you know what I mean? Because there's an element of edu- again, uh, like I say, twelve months of your life. Like, uh, but educating a regulator on the impact of these things, and then from a technological perspective, how to even get the organisations that they govern to even put that thing in place. So, I mean, where did you start with that? Um, so, so strangely, it, it, it's a, it's a strange one inside of open banking. But really, really, what we were focusing on was. Um, Sort of showing proportionality to the relevant regulatory authorities. So both the CMA, who are the Competitional Markets Authority in the UK, who ultimately make the decision about whether or not the banks can be forced to do something, and this is back to this proportionality question, but also to the Financial Conduct Authority in, in the UK, the FCA. And the FCA are concerned with you know, operational risk in markets and whether consumers are going to be exposed to undue risk. So really what we were doing was kind of starting from first principles and taking a risk-based approach analyzing the types of activity that we, we, we would expect to see in market, um, looking at the types of risk that that would throw up, and then looking at VRP as a mechanism and how that would help the, the relevant financial actors in the space control risk. And really what we tried to do is to take a sort of fundamentals-based, risk-based approach. And I think that really helped um, kind of ground things for the regulator and help them get their teeth into it. And the, the other point you made, which is, which is about the kind of the challenge that's now faced by the banks in implementing um, VRP as a new kind of mechanism on top of their core banking systems. This is a significant challenge. I mean, there is no doubt that VRP as a mechanism is a tremendous user experience, and it's something that is going to benefit um, the UK market as a whole. 
tremendously, both consumers and businesses. But there is a big challenge now for the retail banks, the nine big banks in the UK, to deliver that because they have they are large organisations, they have a lot of legacy technology, and VRPs are a fairly complex piece of technology. They now have to bolt on top of uh, those core systems, and so um, they they have six months as a delivery window. So they have till the beginning of 2022, which is not a long time. Yeah, I mean, having seen inside a bunch of banks trying to figure out how to do open banking in the first place, there's going to be a lot of people freaking out somewhere in this one. But I mean, Guerra, I mean, I guess starting on the the customer side of this, like that's uh, the benefits to consumers. I mean, you know, the treating customers fairly is a big part of all of these organizations kind of mantra. But this is a massive step in that way, isn't it? It's huge, yeah. The FCA is treating customers fairly huge, uh, kind of like Bible for a lot of financial services to be following. Um, but yeah, like this opens up so many different like avenues. Like just the imagination, can, you know, my imagination is, is running. Like you know, everything from from figuring out, uh, you know, bypassing the, the traditional um, fees for for things like mortgages. Uh, so you know, transferring like large sums of money. Uh, really just like it this is a good outcome for customers uh, at the end of the day um but as you said banks have six months uh i I think last time they were given a deadline what happened (sighs) took a little bit longer but yeah yeah like me and every bit of homework i ever had you know like there's always an extension if you negotiate isn't there but uh it will be interesting to see where where people kind of get on it but i mean mike mike do you think this is Similarly to what we sort of saw with uh, everything that happened with open banking in the UK, do you think this is going to ripple out into to other places? I mean, is Ron going to start getting worried about what happens in the US shores with uh, with all of these things as well? With in the same way other things have, or because because almost I mean we've we've been the the competition mandate here. This is continuing that theme, I guess, Mike. Right? Yeah. So I think the US I will park to one side because it has a lot of complexities from a regulatory point of view, and I think the kind of approach that the UK has taken with open banking doesn't really work in the US because of the regulatory structure there. It's much more difficult to make something like that work. Having said that, there are some really interesting kind of independent actors who are looking to build these same types of VRP APIs, but using. Uh, different different methods, let's put it that way, in order to get to gain that access. So there's a really interesting company called Teller that's run by my good friend Stevie Graham. They use the channel that powers mobile apps to gain access to the bank account. And obviously, mobile channels now have all the payment functionality in them. And so Teller's actually able to provide a equivalent VRP mechanism, but using uh, the kind of private channel that, that powers the mobile app in order to afford that. So even though the US isn't probably going to adopt the same regulatory um, um, sort of trajectory, there are still market actors that are kind of looking to this these VRP type mechanisms and reproducing them in other ways in that market. But definitely for Europe, um, for Canada, for Australia, for, for all these markets that are already on their open banking journey, I think we put a really strong stake in the ground. The analysis work that we did is all risk-based, so it's not specific to the open banking API itself. So although we did come up with a kind of technical specification which expands the open banking API, if you like, um, the analysis that we did is all applicable regardless of the market and regardless of the specifics of the um, specification. So any um, kind of uh, any different um, jurisdiction that has an open banking scheme and is looking at uh, payment options like VRP can can use the analysis and build on the analysis that we've done, and it's all out there in the open. It's all in public domain. So uh, I would imagine that this would be a big 
a big sea change uh, globally over the next uh, few years. Dave, can I actually jump in and ask Mike a question? Mike, do you think that Visa's acquisition of Tink, could, uh, they could leverage that to bring it to the U.S.? Um, yes. I mean, I'm sure that Visa are considering their relationships with banks and uh, across the banking network in the U.S. and the ability to take a, a, exactly a technology proposition like Tink, which is sort of designed to operate in this gray area of um, uh, kind of normalizing over many different banking interfaces. I'm sure that that would be a strong element of um, how Visa um, see payments evolving in the U.S. landscape and, and beyond. Uh, no doubt, but I think there's a there's definitely a sort of healthy tension between these types of kind of backfilling propositions that look to use other channels to produce the same kind of open banking interface, and then the regulatory um, the, the regulatory uh, kind of uh, way of delivering those types of propositions. But I would say Europe, Australia, Canada would would and, and Singapore as well would be I, I guess probably the first. Um, jurisdictions to, to follow suit, particularly the EU, because we have the same regulatory structure that we built on top of with PSD2. Um, but yeah, the, U- the US is definitely in a good place. And I think Visa definitely has an eye to using its um, its existing network and, and, and Tink's technology to, to deliver the same. Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, regulatory framework, but also payments infrastructure that sits there to, to really sort of facilitate these things. I think it's really interesting your point on Tink, like actually, because I mean, if uh, if I kind of think of the the organizations that are in this space, that actually this dramatically increases the revenue potential of those guys. I mean, if you look at somebody like a Snoop in the UK, um, you know, Snoop has been really, you know, the book on this is going to be like going beyond pie charts, basically, right? As you were sort of alluding to earlier on, Mike, because it's going beyond just going, oh, that's nice. That's really interesting too. Oh, you've acted on my behalf and done something about it to save me, to make me better off, right? It's um, Jason uh, 11FS always talks about private banker for the mass market. Actually, this is a, a step a little bit closer to the private banker for the mass market because it's somebody acting on your behalf to make you better off. Uh, we've got a lot, a lot more steps to do, but I, I have to say, oddly, um, it's an odd thing to be proud of. But like, I'm often very proud of like the CMA, uh, OBIE, uh, the FCA, the Bank of England, because of like the the pro- how progressive they are in terms of moving these things forward. Uh, I mean, uh, like say, Mike, it's twelve months of your life. I'm sure you'll never get back. But in terms of it being hard, but they're always open to listening to these things to to better for the community. They are, and I think. I think real credit needs to be given to the leadership in open banking, particularly um, Imran, um, who's um, who, who heads up open banking, uh, and Chris Michael as well, who's the CTO there. Both both of whom invested a lot of energy in in making VRP and sweeping happen, um, and a lot is owed to them. I think because it's a it's a very difficult job um, to kind of charter those waters. You're dealing with a lot of forces. Um, a lot of um, you know different opposed incentives and different views on the world, and and they did I, I would say a pretty masterful job of um, you know effectively treating everybody fairly, giving everyone a fair hearing, and then actually you know making a decision and moving forwards. And, and they they have they have themselves a lot to be proud of of where the UK is with open banking because the UK is in an excellent position. We're leading the world, and a lot of people are looking to us, and that's that's in no small part to to, to people like Imran and Chris. 
Yeah, super, super impressed with Imran since he's gone full time there. We'll uh, we'll get him back on the show to talk more about this one, but uh, I can't imagine it's going to be the last thing they do. So uh, <laughs> anyway, again, another another conversation we probably could go on for the entirety of the hour on, uh, but there's a lot of other stories. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a quick break. We'll be back with you shortly. This podcast is sponsored by WaveMaker, the industry's most open, API-driven, low-code platform for hyper-accelerating embedded finance applications. WaveMaker delivers a rich, drag-and-drop visual studio that fintechs, brands, and financial institutions use for rapidly composing serious banking and financial services apps. Developers can easily consume APIs and build in an enterprise-grade environment, leverage custom pre-built components with APIs, logic, and UI, or even build out complete embedded finance journeys that your customers can extend or customize. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.wavemaker.com today. Customers expect more from their digital experience, and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch, or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction, and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. Hokkaidoki. All right. So the next story was over on TechCrunch, which is uh, Kuda, the African Challenger Bank, raises $55 million at a $500 million valuation. The startup has closed uh, via its London entity a Series B uh, $55 million um, raise, money that it plans to use to double down not just on new services for Nigeria, uh, but to prepare its uh, launch into more countries in the continent. Uh, Co-founder and CEO, who we actually had on the show uh, not too long ago, I I believe, uh, Babs, I just love the name. Like it's just such an approachable human being as well. Um, recently said on on this, every African on the planet uh, needs to be included within banking services, which is an amazing thing to amazing step step to make, given the size of the continent and the amount of people on that continent. Um, the funding was made up uh, a valuation of five hundred million, as I said a second ago, and it comes on the back of early growth for the startup. Kudo now has one point four million registered users uh, and has doubled that since March. I mean this is um it's amazing i mean fintech guerra i mean you've been almost uh like uh doing primary research for for the last six months or so in terms of uh being there and uh you know really sort of soaking it in but it feels like it's changing so quickly in terms of the the expectations the sizes of companies the raises that are happening out there and it seems like every week there is a, a big story happening it's dizzying. I mean, it's exciting, but I'm also like the anxiety in me is kind of creeping up because I'm like, oh no, is this a bubble? Um, but no, the, it's definitely the, like, yeah, you said every week we're hearing, uh, you know, Chipper Cash has raised and is a unicorn now. Uh, you know, we've got Fair Money, Flutterwave, uh, just ye- yesterday, WapiPay, uh, who are facilitating uh, transfers between um, Asia and Africa. It's just, there's so much happening in this space, in the fintech space in Africa. And it's, it's kind of like a, a very, a blank slate, you know, like the, the pipes haven't been built. Like it's, there's so much to do and so much opportunity. So, um, but with regards to CUDA, this is so exciting. They're growing up. Uh, they're, they're doing away with the sticky tape and gum that they've been using to hold the company together. Uh, and now they're kind of growing up and, and, and bringing in, you know, a lot of expertise. And I think that's what this funding is really going to do. Um, so I wonder, I wonder, you know, what will happen to CUDA and as well to the industry, the, you know, the African fintech space, once the dust and all the money that's been flying around has settled. 
um, you know, expansion for CUDA, expansion for all these other these other fintechs. Are they trying to expand within the continent, outside the continent? Um, who, who's to know? We'll see. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they they sort of made a comment. Uh, they said uh, CUDA was built by a bunch of kids, but with scale comes a set of responsibilities. Pretty sure that's a Spider-Man quote right there. But uh, um, they have since doubled down on expanding their risk and finance teams, and this and this investment is is now paying off. You know, look, as you say, this is almost the organisations going through that startup phase to being a scale up and you know really understanding what it means to to operate a financial services organisation. But to your point though, on something like Wappy Pay, I mean, it, they raised two. 2.2 million on a pre-seed like that was pre-seed so there's just huge amounts of money going in there and why do you think that is do you think it's because of almost infinite scale off the back of it if you can take these types of services to such a huge um customer base like it could just boom couldn't it as you say it absolutely could. And, you know, with, with the population of Africa, you know, being quite young, there's a quite large young population, tons of young people. So a lot of tech adoption, uh, a lot of a lot of already, you know, the chasm of, of understanding and, and trusting using, you know, mobile phones for uh, and, and apps for with money that, you know, that kind of was a chasm that you had, we had to cross in the West and the global North. Um, but in Africa, like in Kenya, for example, I, I pay my rent via my phone, <laughs> like everyone, you know, is, is kind of, is, is ready for that. So it, like I said, it's a blank slate. There's, there's, there's so much potential. Um, and I think that there's a bit of a, a scramble for Africa right now uh, that's going on. It's um, it's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, when, uh, for everybody who's not in Africa, looking at Africa, Africa looks like a big single place. Do you know what I mean? But we've seen from like M-Pesa, just because it works one place in Africa doesn't mean it works in another place in Africa, right? So um, do you think, uh, I guess there are some trends that we've seen. I mean, Revolut just seems to be on a look. We're going to do the same thing everywhere. We're going to roll it out to everywhere. I mean, is there a is there a danger with almost looking at the continent as a whole and rolling out to other places that they miss the thing that made it really unique and therefore the why was the beachhead special and why did people care about it? Absolutely, Africa is not a monolith, right? Like, if I just look at West Africa, East Africa, South Africa, you know, like the Northern African area, like it even but even within those, there's just so much diversity, um, and and the diff- different mar- like different markets have might have different beachheads. So, you know, Francophone Africa might have very different needs to the Arabic speaking Africa uh, in terms of of their financial service needs. Um, but you know. When I see and hear about CUDA and all these other fintechs planning to expand on the continent, across the continent, I wonder if they're going to go, you know, try and do the same thing and find product market fit on their own, or maybe they're going to go the, you know, acquisition route, um, you know, and, and, and try and, and offer the same or different services across the continent. Uh, It's, it's not an easy, it it won't, it won't be a very simple um, linear growth pattern. I don't think for any of them. Dave, can I jump in on that point? Yeah, sure. Because I think that's a really good point about the differences. And Claire, of course, will know it 100 million times better than I would. But I think you also got to look at the banking structure across each of the countries. Uh, because in, in some African nations, there are actually a, you know, a, a banking infrastructure that's in place with a lot of small institutions, others that are, you know, more dominated by some larger ones. There's a Uruguayan based company of all places down in South America named Bankingly, 
that is actually done very well. It's it's really a think of it as sort of like a FISERV, FIS, you know, digital banking provider, not not a core. I shouldn't put them in the same category. They're more of a you know Q two Alchemy, a, a digital banking provider that has actually done very well in South America by helping a lot of small banks um, you know, become develop a mobile banking and digital banking capability. They've expanded into Africa and they're focusing on the nations that have you know a large number of small banks that really struggle to do that. So uh, you know yes the the neobanks, the, the fintechs are going to have a huge impact, but I wouldn't count out you know, many of the existing banks as, as they're, you will find um, players coming in who are going to help them uh, ramp up their digital capabilities. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? The I mean, the B2C place is usually where all the attention goes. But to your point, the B2B bit is usually where most of the fun is at, isn't it? But uh, I mean, Mike, Mike, what do you think on this one? Is this, uh, I mean, we've seen to that point, we've seen players like Mambu be born out of, you know, trying to create really low cost infrastructure that can support really, you know, at web scale, you know, really like, uh, you know, significant um, scaling around those things. Are we going to see more and more innovations coming out of Africa, do you think? I, I think so. I mean, I, I think the, the more um, the, the consumer, the, the, the adoption of technology in these markets is, is, is clearly um, significant. Um, so I, I can't see a reason why these markets wouldn't be um, wouldn't be targets for for um, people innovating in financial technology. Uh, I, I I think more we we were talking offline a little bit about um, the FCA sandbox and what's that what that's done for the UK. I think the more that African authorities can do to help people building financial uh, technologies to help them with the regulatory hurdles that they'll face to help them with things like risk. Um, I think the more that those authorities can do to help foster innovation, and some of that may be, you know, borrowing from the playbook of the FCA, looking at stuff like what we've done with open banking in the UK, all these types of things. I think the more that regulators can do to help foster innovation domestically, so that these aren't international companies coming into Africa, but these are actually companies that are able to grow out of Africa, I think would be um, you know, hugely, hugely beneficial and, and speaks to this challenge of not looking at Africa as a kind of monolithic continent, but actually having founders based all over Africa who are, who are meeting the needs of people you know, um, in, 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 in different countries. At this stage, I'm going to sound like I'm. Um, this podcast is not sponsored by the FCA, but like actually, like the you know things like the the GFIN initiative in terms of actually doing those, and and actually even what um, the DIT do in the UK in terms of establishing those trade things. It it is making it easier for organisations to. Uh, to not just come here, but actually broaden much, you know, broader from a, a global perspective in terms of what those things are. And I do, I do think to your point, Mike, as well. Actually, the more regulators globally all engage with one another, then um, you know, we are all just little sandboxes. You know, really, when you look at if you look at us all from space, it's just like people f- making it up and figuring out what the impact is. And uh, the more people can learn from those things globally, the the better everything is essentially. So uh, I think I just described the Earth as like various petri dishes which is uh, <laughs> it's not it's not it's not great is it i'm not sure i'm, I'm pretty sure there'll be complaints about that one somebody, <laughs> but uh, anyway at that point we better move on um the next story was over on TechCrunch. so this is rapid raises 300 million dollars on a 8.75 billion valuation as fintech as a service continues to boom so rapid is the uh the world's 
largest pay- local payments network, they call themselves, uh, all by the way of an API for third parties to integrate quickly into their own services. 300 million is a pretty meaty raise that they've kind of gone for. Uh, Rapid's total payment volume is on target to pass 20 billion this year, a fourfold increase on 2020 volumes of 5 billion. Uh, the company has around 12,000 small and medium-sized businesses using its services with another 650 large enterprise clients as well. Uh, I mean, it just, I mean, Mike, it just shows, I mean, payments, there's just so much opportunity in payments, so much stuff happening in that space, so many uh, companies like really exploding in the payment space. Um, Should we be surprised at that? It's almost the, we talk about the fabric, like payments are a massive part of that fabric, aren't they? Yeah, as a a founder of a payments company, I'm a little bit biased, but um, I I mean, there there is a lot of... um, there's a lot of room for innovation in payments because the last 50, 60 years is a story where, at least, at least in uh, in the UK and in Europe, um, Visa and Mastercard have dominated consumer payments, um, and they haven't really had any major competition. Um, and I think some of these new trends, not just in open banking. But also in this whole area of blockchain, now we're looking at central bank digital currencies. There are some real genuine systemic changes happening to finance that are putting some serious pressure on these kind of incumbent consumer payment networks that have dominated payments for 50 years. And I think it's, first of all, it's overdue. Uh, And secondly, I think the opportunity for founders, the opportunity for investors, the opportunity for consumers and businesses who are looking for new competitive payment methods. I think is is enormous, and and I'm all for it. I mean, uh, I'm biased, but I think it's a it's a great time to be in payments. It's a great time to be in finance in general, but particularly in payments. As you say, there, I mean, the word competition sort of pops up again, doesn't it? Which is, uh, you know, the the comp- It used to be, um, you know, share of wallet is like what credit card was at the front of the thing. You know, we're getting into an interesting thing, predominantly, I guess, in more in the B two C sense in terms of retail. But I mean. Uh, you know, whether it's pause or whether it's like a checkout, uh, a website, the the fighting for who's at the top of that list uh, is becoming increasingly interesting, isn't it? I know these guys, you know, skew a little bit more to the the B two B and and sort of serving SMEs, but but that that sort of uh, competition now at that space can only really end up being a great thing from a consumer perspective, right? It it should do. I mean, (laughs) these things always have to play out. We may end up just creating another visa and we end up with another organization that tends to dominate this space. That can always happen. I think the thing that I like about the trend uh, with open finance and with uh, what's likely to happen with central bank digital currencies is that these systems are fundamentally at, at their core, they're open. And the fact that they're open keeps a lot of the actors honest. One of the big problems in consumer payments is that the access that was enjoyed by Visa and to some extent MasterCard as well uh, was that that was ultimately determined by quite a small number of retail banks. And obviously that 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 creates a very kind of um, it's it's a it's a set of incentives that only really produce one outcome. And it will be interesting to see how in this new world of kind of open payments and and, and whatever kinds of new payment methods emerge whether or not those competitive forces um, are sufficient enough to overcome some of the other um, kind of barriers to entry that start to emerge like network effects. So, I mean, network effects are a very common kind of moat that are enjoyed by large companies, particularly in networks like payment networks. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not the competitive forces of open finance and 
um, and, and crypto and central bank digital currencies can keep those propositions honest or whether or not it all devolves back into the same sort of world as as we've had for the last 50 years with the existing incumbent payment networks. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? To, to that point, as you you, know, you talk about network effects, actually, I mean, the the moat for, and almost the, the push for these networks that exist today, the really big players, is that they have to consume so much of the market to sustain such a significant operating cost across the, their network. So actually, when you've got really low cost, you know, much, you know, fractions of the cost players that are coming into the market, then actually they can be sustained on a much lower, percentage market share which actually then just creates a and, and that's fascinating isn't it i yeah. mean you, you know the embedded finance side of things more holistically as well um i think that applies to all the way through it you know not just i mean ron you you, you mentioned a, a little bit earlier on somebody like a, a fiserv but when you've got the 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 need to feed as many mouths as a fiserv does well actually when you know checkout.com or when you've got uh you know solaris bank or you know all of these much lower cost platforms coming into the market then actually almost the you know you can you can be a, a multi-billion pound company with having one percent of the market if you've, you're aiming at the right market which is super exciting isn't it yeah, well, you bring up an interesting couple of examples. You know, look at what FIS and Fiserv did over the past couple of years of acquiring WorldPay. And, uh, you know, so they're going for scale on payments in a world where the payments are moving. So you've got you've to wonder if, if in the long term that was the right way to go. You know, the rapid deal um, kind of brings up three three quick things, if you don't mind me kind of making three quick points here. Number one is... Uh, I think it kind of reinforces my thought from a little while ago that payments is becoming the fifth P of marketing. As these payment mechanisms proliferate, they become mechanisms or levers for enabling, uh, you know, the, both the merchant and the customer to, to benefit and profit. Uh, number two observation on this is that the, a company like Rapid is a good example of why terms like BAS, banking as a service, and embedded finance are such poor descriptors uh, for what's going on. Embedded payments is not the same as embedded lending or embedded insurance. It's very different, and it's it's not just like banking as a service. It, it really is, um, uh, you know, re, re, retooling the whole payment infrastructure altogether. And the third point is. Um, my understanding, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Rapid is planning to use some of the funds from the raise for acquisition. So to your earlier point at the top of the show about uh, fintechs buying other fintechs, here's a great example of, uh, you know, using this uh, capital raise not to just build out, you know, more technology and salespeople, uh, but to look at acquisition from, you know, consolidation in the space. Uh, and this has got to be the absolute fastest consolidation in financial services we've we've ever seen. Um, although I guess you could argue, and many people will, that no, 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 financial services is different than fintech, Ron. It's a different industry. So you can argue <laughs> that point. I'll, I'll take it if you want to fight me on it. <laughs> Um, and it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, and, and to your point on the acquisitions, I mean, they've got they've got form for doing that and doing that well to globally expand significantly. 
and and that's a decent play, isn't it? Buying a company to expand into a new geo where they're already operating, where they already understand the regulator, where they already you know have a a, a fully functioning operation. Super super smart. So, uh, but it, it's amazing, isn't it? I um you know I remember when we started this show like five years ago, like five million seemed like a lot, and now everybody's raising you know hundreds of millions, and there's billions of valuations, and it's every week. You know, it's just uh, almost the to your point, Ron. The the ticket sizes are getting bigger but the almost the um the real problems we're actually sort of starting to deal with which is uh, which is exciting and there's there no is some, uh, oh, sorry. There, there is something i'm concerned about though dave if you look at the banking industry and how the technology has evolved especially here in the u.s maybe not so much in the uk but uh you know why do we have fis's and fiserv's and jack henry's today is because uh, banks went out looking for best of breed technology, and then the FIS's, Fiserv's, Jack Henry's, you know, consolidated all of that. And you, you, but you still have a real mess of an architecture because people went looking for the best of breed. And I don't think enough attention is paid that in this banking as a service or embedded finance or embedded payment space that we could be going down the same path. Because, you know, you've got a Marquetta who's, you know, best of breed in card issuance. You may have somebody who's best of breed in uh, payment acceptance, somebody who's best of breed in, you know, fund transfer or fund storage. You know, there's so many or, you know, even look at Rails Bank, um, you know, cards as a service, credit as a service. So you know, there's a danger that from a merchant or brand perspective that, um, you know, they're going to have to make a choice between one-stop shop for banking as a service versus best of breed banking as a service. And we could be going down the same path that banks went down, you know, over the past 30 years. So if I was going to put a positive spin on that, I would say that the difference here may be that because of this kind of more of open finance paradigm where these systems are being integrated through APIs, is there are very clear seams between these kind of subsystems which are being bolted together, which creates a situation where you don't have such tightly coupled um, components, both at, both at a kind of organizational level, but, but, but also technologically as well. And so it means that switching out components is easier because they're composed in, in, in a more decoupled way. So I think open finance may be able to play a role in ensuring that we are not rebuilding more spaghetti that's going to ultimately kind of uh, end up in the same same state. It, it, I it totally is, agree with that, Mike. I think it's a great point. It is um, It is interesting, isn't it? You don't want to basically replicate a modern-day monolith in terms of that setup around it. And, and I agree with you, Mike. The, almost the base-level orchestration now of services is a, a tapestry rather than building it as, a, as an individual thing. I, I mean, it's interesting. On to your point, Ron, why did organizations get to that place in the first place? I think is really interesting. I was, I was speaking to the uh, CEO of, of Zeta, uh, who was a, a platform in that sense uh, earlier on this morning. Uh, and we were saying, it's like, I, I, I personally think it was because they, I mean, and, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, but they didn't know what they were buying. Do you know what I mean? Like in the same sense, like if you ask me to buy wine, I buy like Lamborghini or some shit, like, cause I just don't know anything about wine. If you don't know anything about technology, you don't, you don't buy it because it's good. You buy it because other people have bought it. 
And that's actually what we've seen for probably like 20 years in in banking, probably longer. And actually, that's sort of perpetuated by things like, you know, Gartner Magic Quadrants, which aren't really a, a scale of, is this good? It's actually a measure of like, who's bought it most frequently in what regions over places that are deemed to be strategic. Um, so that just has a tendency to mean just because somebody's bought it, it moves further and further to the right, rather than it necessarily being that it's good. Um, but almost like what we're getting is, we're getting people with a better palette for for financial services technology joining financial services organizations. Therefore, they're trying to buy things that are good rather than just things that other people have bought. If that makes sense. So I, um, you know, I'm usually uh, I'm usually quick to be like, no, everybody's stupid and blah 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 blah. But in this sense, like, there's smarter and smarter, smarter people coming into those organizations being brought. And I think Mike, to your point on you know that level of low level primitive orchestration is like it's new to banking, but it's not new to mm. all other industries that are you know lateral to banking. And bringing people within within that ex- with that experience means almost we've got um, you know sommeliers of, uh, of financial services uh, uh, technology, which is. Uh, Probably uh, that, uh, that's another shout for the title of this one, Laura <laughs> producer. Uh, we'll uh, we'll give it a go in a second. Um, Guerra, any any sort of points on this? Because I mean, I, I feel like um, I feel like we slightly went off with, from from rapid, but this point around you know underlying deep seated technology for banking and actually how we get from where we are to there. Uh, again, I think that's probably another hour worth of conversation in itself. Eh? Yeah, definitely. We could go on for hours and hours about this, but we we do need to keep on track today. That's true. Sorry, I do apologize. Uh, we'll, we'll move on then. All right. Before we move back to the uh, news and the next part of the show, we wanted to let you know we're planning on AMA. So that's a Ask Us Anything episode of Fintech Insider, where you can ask us literally anything that you want to. Call the brand new Fintech Insider hotline on 020-8050-0611. That's 020-8050-0611. Leave your name and we will shout you out and play your message on that AMA show. Alternatively, if you want to tweet us or send us a voice note, you can hit us up on podcasts at 11fs.com with your questions, or you can email us over if you don't want to record yourself. Like, don't be shy, get involved. Uh, We can't wait to see what you've got for us. We're really looking forward to getting back on that answers. Look forward to seeing what you've got. All right, back to the news. And in this part of the show, we want to quickly cover as many of the other stories that we just didn't have chance to cover today. And um, there's many of them out there that uh, really deserve a shout out. Guerra, do you want to get us going? Alrighty. Snoop raises 15 million pounds to fund international expansion. This is coming from Finextra. So founded by former Virgin Money chief, Jane Ann Gadia, uh, smart money app Snoop has secured 15 million pounds in a Series A funding from American investment management firm Paulson & Co, Inc. Snoop uses open banking technology to connect to customers' customers' bank accounts and credit cards, snooping through the data to find money-saving opportunities on bad deals, poor value renewals, and wasteful subscriptions. Uh, The latest funding comes off the back of a recent £10 million crowdfund round uh, in December that brings the 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 total to the total of the startup is raised to thirty four million pounds. So Gadia says the cash will be used to fund product and distribution development, uh, and extend an extension as well. 
Um, so as as well as an aid as well as aid international expansion, with the U.S. identify as a key target. This is amazing. I am a Snoop beta user. I've been using Snoop since they were in the early days. I'm so excited. I'm very sad I never got in on the crowdfund. Uh, but expanding to the U.S. is is uh, it's very ambitious. I can't wait to see see what they do there. I thought you meant Snoop Dogg raised fifty million, and I was like, wow, that's really colossal. <laughs> I was like, wow, I mean, this guy's already invested in Klarna and God knows what else he's done. For so I was like, I thought, wow, this is really cool. I think uh, if he did a crowdfunding round, I reckon it'd be even higher than that, right? If he if he did, but uh, do you know, what? I'm a big big fan of Snoop. You say uh Norwich FinTech Mafia, so I'm like uh, I'm big big on them in terms of all the things that they're doing. So uh, and it's super interesting to see uh, how this progresses. I mean, back to the story you were talking about earlier on with uh, with Mike and everything with with open banking. Then th- surely that change puts such a big, you know boost to their valuation and their potential so we'll see what they do uh, uh see what they do next with it uh next up there was a story you didn't get to cover over on Finextra. this is element ventures bags 130 million dollars uh for b2b fintech funds as we were saying earlier on b2b is kind of where all the funds at really so uh b2b fintech focused venture capitals pulled together a 130 million dollar fund backing from fintech founders and financial services executives uh today it has backed B2B fintech firms across the UK and Europe, including Hepster, the embedded insurance platform, uh, and B2B payments networks, and various other things that they've kind of been out there doing. I mean, it's super interesting. I really, 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 really do think B2B is so much more interesting because essentially solving, I think B2C is a branding problem. B2B is a product problem. And actually, if you really get that product problem nailed, you can scale just in a way a B2C just can't. Uh, so it's it's really exciting to see what happens next on this one. Uh, back to you, Gra. Robinhood spikes 65% halted for volatility. So this is from Yahoo Finance. Uh, Robinhood was temporarily halted for volatility um, this morning as the stock spiked 65% in the first few minutes of trading uh, on Wednesday, just a week after the IPO. Uh, the stock price blew past the IPO price of $38 on Tuesday and closed at $46.80 in a stark contrast to its public debut last week when the stock sank as much as 12% below its IPO price during the first day of trading on the NASDAQ. Retail interest could be the, the factor for the upward move, uh, and Robinhood is one of the most mentioned stocks on Reddit's Wall Street bets. Uh, Robinhood has also been a key player in the retail trading boom involving GameStop uh, recently, uh, going so far as to freeze trading of GameStop stocks stocks uh, on its platform when it blew up in January. Uh, so shout out to Volatility. Um, at the time of recording, I haven't checked in the last like 20 minutes, but their stock today, there's been more volatility. It dropped 14% today uh, since markets opened about two hours ago. Uh, so we might see this continue to trend down. It's wild that, you know, they, they didn't have the IPO pop that that we've, you know, in, in historically uh, IPOs have known of. Um, it's just, it trended up and now it's going down again. <laughs> I wonder who's shorting it. I feel like there's a lot of people on Reddit shorting it right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it just shows on all these things. It's only ever worth what people will pay for it, right? And uh, and actually, when it when it comes to IPOs, it's just a big old guess what they think it is, and then the market really decides, doesn't it? So uh, fascinating to see. But uh, I mean, the fact that it's uh, it's bubbling up and down, somebody's definitely making money out of that for sure, aren't they? All right, uh, brings us to the end of the news. Unfortunately, uh, there's a one last story as we always like to lead out on the uh, just to to really uh, uh, just have a little bit of fun at the end of this. But uh, so this is a story that was on Alt Fi. 
private jets are so last year. This is according to John Collinson, because he's buying an airport, which is crazy. You know, just when you thought Stripe couldn't do anything else. I know this isn't strictly a Stripe thing. It's more of a private one before anybody says. But Stripe co-founder John Collinson is part of a consortium looking to buy Western Airport near Dublin in Ireland. So earlier this year, he snapped up a 20 million euro uh, 1,100-acre estate uh, only an hour from the airport and is also an avid pilot and learned to fly at Western Airport. Um, do you know what? Where I played basketball, I didn't go and buy the stadium. Do you know what I mean? Like after <laughs> that, that uh, just shows we live very different lives, don't we? But uh, uh, in the last year, he's also chartered a private jet for Stripe's headquarters in San Francisco back to Ireland, landing at an often overcrowded Dublin airport. So, I mean, is this like, I get quite frustrated when I have to take a taxi from Heathrow to, to Liverpool Street. Is this him just solving his commuter problem? What do you think, Guerra? I think it's I think it's hilarious. I mean, maybe he's he's uh, setting it up for employees of Stripe. Maybe Stripe's going to have a mega office uh, in Dublin and and be shuttling people back and forth. But then again, also like, aren't businesses like being more environmentally conscious and not flying around the world? That's true. That's true. I mean, it's. I'm sure somebody will work that out, though. What would be the... I remember when I used to work at Aviva and lived in Norwich and tried to get into London, there was somebody who calculated it would be cheaper for us to hire a helicopter and probably more environmentally friendly than all of the taxis and then the train. Um, so maybe they've done their sums. They seem like quite a smart set of brothers, don't they? Maybe they've figured it out. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty on brand for them as well because they've done a lot for Ireland. They've created a lot of jobs. They've created a lot of wealth there. Um, and I think really this is probably part of a kind of broader vision to to help Ireland grow and succeed. And infrastructure like this is is always beneficial. So um, hats off to John for um, yeah for for doing something positive for Ireland. Right? It's amazing. They've gone from payments infrastructure to uh, air traffic control <laughs> infrastructure. It's uh, Is there anything they can't do? I'm sure we'll find out on the next news story, but we will come back to that one at some point. All right, we, we better wrap up on this. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. Where can people learn a little bit more about all the good things that you're doing, Mike? Uh, I'm on Twitter, MikeKelly85. And if you just look me up on LinkedIn, MikeKelly, uh, curl if you can't find me. Um, very good. Ron, uh, where can people read more about the uh, great stuff that you're putting out? Uh, the Forbes FinTech section under the money uh, header and uh, or just Google uh, FinTech Snark Tank. Very good. Guerra, where can people find you? Uh, 11FS.com and on Twitter at NotGuerra. Very, very good. As for me, I'm predominantly lurking on LinkedIn these days. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to hit up that answer machine. I'm very much looking forward to see what comes through. Uh, otherwise, join the conversation on all of the usual social media places or email us on podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye.